You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. Uh, This morning, we'll be in the book of Hebrews. Uh, As we were last week, and specifically today, we'll be looking at the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, um, there should be one in, underneath the chair in front of you in one of the baskets. Um, whether this is your first time opening the Bible or the thousandth, don't be afraid of the table of contents. Um, every time we open the Bible t- to read, it's an opportunity to meet face-to-face with God, to hear his very words and be transformed by it. So the first few verses of Hebrews 12 are some of the most transformative verses uh, that have impacted me personally. Um, About ten and a half years ago, I spent the summer in Virginia Beach on a summer missions project with the campus ministry I was a part of. We spent the first half of the summer going through the book of Hebrews, which, if you're like me, you're a Bible nerd, and it was amazing. Uh, There's all these themes that run through the Bible, evident in the book of Hebrews. There's the unfolding of the Old Testament and the New, and all these different theological concepts. But despite all that had knowledge bursting forth into my brain, what was most impactful is the simple message found at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 12, to look to Jesus. And so the book of Hebrews, it's a letter written by an unknown author uh, to Christians undergoing suffering, And it seems to be like a transcribed sermon. Um, The main point of the entire book, or the sermon, or this letter, is that Jesus is better than all else. He is supreme. He is more faithful and worthy of trust than anyone or anything. And in your weariness, your sorrow, and your pain, don't turn away from him, but look to him, trust him. Pastor Jonathan and I independently but providentially chose to preach out of Hebrews this last week and today um, as just a short break from our series through Matthew. Um, So if you weren't here, go back, listen to a sermon in Hebrews chapter 2. It's funny, I went back to find my notes from that summer, and the only notes I could find was from the passage that he preached. Um, And so my summary won't do justice to just the awe I had when listening to that, that considering the majesty of Jesus becoming like us. So the first nine and a half chapters of Hebrews paint this masterpiece of a picture that Jesus is better. He's better than everything. He's better than angelic beings. He's divine. He's the Son of God, the exact imprint of the nature of the Father. He is the visible expression of the holiness of God, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is a better messenger than angels, and he brings a better message. And Jesus is a better leader than Moses or Joshua, and he's bringing a better rest. And he is the better high priest who can perfectly intercede because he is both fully God and fully man. He can represent us, he can represent God, and he's the mediator of a better covenant with better promises. He is the better sacrifice who by one sacrifice doesn't just cleanse the sins of his people for a time, but instead he purifies them for all time. 
And even though Jesus is this incomprehensibly glorious and holy and perfect one, the better than all else, the greatest, the supreme, whatever superlative you want to use, Jesus became lowly, like us. Last week on Christmas Eve, Pastor Jonathan helped us to reflect on this sheer wonder of the divine becoming human, taking on flesh, the incarnation, that he himself likewise partook of the same things as us. The perfect light entered into our dark and broken, messed up world to save us. He is the king who cares for and identifies with the suffering and dying. Jesus is the leader who suffers for those who would follow him. He's the brother who is proud of us. So after those nine and a half chapters of just showing how great Jesus is, the author of Hebrews spends the last part of the book calling us to trust Jesus, for he is the faithful one. And he describes what this trust or this faith looks like, both in defining what faith is, giving examples of those who are faithful, and giving practical examples of how to live out an enduring faith. So faith or trust or belief can all be used interchangeably. Those three words are often meaning the same thing in the Bible. Um, And the author of Hebrews defines faith not as a blind, fleeting hope based on nothing, but rather faith is a core conviction that something is true, even when we cannot see it in the present, based on the trustworthiness of the one who's telling us that thing. We saw an example of that in the passage last week in Hebrews uh, 2, verse 8, where it stated that everything is in subjection under the feet of Jesus, but at presently, we don't see it that way. Everything's under his control, and yet sometimes we have to trust knowing that he is the wise one. And so the author of Hebrews, after defining what faith is, he then recounts all these tales of these imperfect people that trusted in God's promise. Men and women, old and young, and even for them, the promises were not fulfilled in their lifetimes. Um, and we'll, we'll start at the end of that section, right after he's telling all these tales of these people in Hebrews chapter 11. So turn with me to Hebrews 11. We'll start in verse 32 and read through verse 3 of chapter 12. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, 
and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So we see here at the end of chapter 11, there's some people that are accomplishing these mighty feats, as well as people experiencing just terror and agony. And yet all of them are commended for their faith, their trust in God's promises. They aren't commended for what they did, but rather for their belief that God would do what he said he would do. And even if they didn't see the promises fully realized in their lifetimes, they trusted that he would do what he says he will do, and they kept moving forward. There's a large portion of American Christianity just infected with this false teaching that if we have enough faith, we won't suffer, that our sicknesses will all be healed, that God will provide us with everything that we want for a life of comfort, that everything we touch will prosper. And if it isn't happening, you must need more faith. Um, so don't say anything negative and put your money where your mouth is and give it to us. And see, look, we are wealthy. It must be true. If it's not working for you, something's wrong. And this can be blatant, but it can also be subtle, where we start to treat God as a genie or as a vending machine just going to him whenever we just want or need something from him, rather than spending time knowing him and in his presence. And all of this, it stunts our growth in faith. It robs us of our joy in Christ because we're looking not to Jesus, but rather to what he can give us. And we're running after these things that don't ultimately satisfy. God somehow brought me to faith in such a prosperity gospel, word of faith movement, so I know this well. And I wish someone had told me sooner to stop looking at this, look to Jesus. Stop looking at that, look to Jesus and look to him alone. And isn't that these false teachings are completely wrong, but the truth, it's twisted and the timing's off. Having faith or putting our trust in Jesus doesn't mean everything's just going to be hunky-dory in this life. But Jesus does promise that he will return to restore all things where there's no longer any pain or sorrow or sickness or death. But if you think God's plan is for you to have your best life now, Talk to the person who was sawn in two or was tortured, who was commended for his faith. Now the question is, why were these people so determined? How could they keep going when it seemed like everything around them was falling apart? God had given them promises, and he never failed them before, so why would he start failing them now? And so they strained ahead, seeing themselves as strangers and exiles on earth with a better heavenly home with God in this future city, knowing that if they were to die, God would one day raise them from the dead. And so consider Jesus, this faithful one, who also endured suffering for the joy that was before him, joy that he would set his people from sin and death through his obedience and through his suffering, that he would have brothers and sisters alongside him. And he did die for us, and he was raised from the dead, and he kept his word and showed that he 
can be trusted. For he loved us so much to die in our place for our sin, even when we were his enemies and we despised him. And this Jesus, this faithful one, is the prize of this race of faith. Because here we see this metaphor of this walk with Christ, this life of faith is a race. And so throughout our time together this morning, I'll be asking a few questions that I want us all to ponder. And so the first one of that is, what are you running after? What is the dream, the thing, the person, the job you are chasing? Are you chasing after control, after safety, appreciation, praise, love, honor, glory? And how is that actually going? We're called to run with our gaze transfixed on the face of Jesus. In him is true satisfaction and contentment for the longing in our souls. In him is peace and joy beyond understanding. In this dark and broken world, in him is kindness and forgiveness extended to even the least deserving of us. In him is grace and mercy in our time of need. In him is love that never forsakes, never leaves, never abandons or wavers. He is our prize the pearl of great price, the hidden treasure in the field that's worth selling everything for. Jesus is more worthy of trust than anyone or anything, and he's proven so. So in your weariness, don't turn away from him, but fix your gaze upon him. Consider him and run to him with abandon. The word for race here is the Greek word agon, which is where we get the word agony. That it's not this light jog, but rather it's a struggle, it's a fight. It'll take effort, and it'll take more than you can possibly muster. But it's worth it, and you're not alone in this race. God pours out his spirit to his people to strengthen them. He goes with them. He reminds them to look to Christ, to be with them. And God adopts his people into a family. And he gives them brothers and sisters to run alongside. And so from time to time, I remember the encouragement of one such brother in Christ. Um, he was a couple years older than me uh, when I was in high school. I didn't know him very well, but I, I did look up to him. Uh, he helped me with some programming projects, and through that I was inspired to study computer science. And he was also so kind, and he continually pointed me and others to Jesus. And a couple years after he graduated, he developed cancer, and he died at the age of 20. And so my freshman year of college, where I did end up studying computer science, largely due to the impact he had on me, I remember seeing that he was sick and he was dying, and I was shocked. Yes, by the absurd tragedy of someone dying so young. But also shocked because about a month before he died, he filmed and sent a video to the youth group at the church that he was working at. And in this video, he's in a hospital bed without hair. He's obviously weak and frail and tired. And this is what he says. When we go through a tough experience, our first order of business should be to glorify God. 
That should be all our lives, basically, but especially in these tough situations. It's easy to lose sight of what the goal is. Like if you have cancer, you want your cancer to be healed, whether medically or spiritually, but that shouldn't be your first focus. Your first focus should be, how can I glorify God in this? Despite the fact that there's pain, suffering, and total suckiness, I've been able to glorify God. I've had tons of stories of people who are now closer to God, and that was my goal, to get people closer to God. But really, the Holy Spirit did it. The driving power behind this is the Holy Spirit. If I was trying to do this on my own, God would not be glorified. I would be glorified, and I don't want that. I want God glorified. And so the only way we can do that is to ask God to give us the Holy Spirit in order to empower us to make the vision of the people looking at you, at me, to see Jesus. There have been a lot of times over the last 11 years where I'll go back to that video. I'll watch it and be encouraged to remember to look to Jesus, that he is our prize. And so the next question I want us to look at is, who in your life encourages you to run towards Jesus? This is exactly why we were reminded in these verses in Hebrews 12 that we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. In this race metaphor, you can imagine them as like a cloud of spectators in an, in an arena. But it's more than that. Uh, there, it doesn't really translate well, but the word here for witnesses is the same word for martyr. That um, not only are they witnessing seeing us run, but they are witnessing to us. They've gone before, that they've finished the race. They've shown that Jesus is worth it. By the, enduring to the end, and they're now cheering us on. And a cheering crowd can be a powerful thing. Um, about a month ago, I was watching my alma mater. Uh, I went to the University of Michigan. So we were playing our biggest rival, Ohio State, in football. Um, and during the third quarter, one of our best players on our team, one of the, our best leaders, this, the stalwart of our offensive line, he broke his leg. And the stadium goes silent. And the team's distraught. Their eyes are filled with tears. Some of them are banging their helmets on the ground in sorrow. The life is just sucked out of the team, out of the stadium. And as he's carted off the field, someone in the crowd shouts out, we love you, Zach. And then there's this chant that starts saying, let's go, Zach. Let's go, Zach. Let's go, Zach. And the chant is deafening. And the team is lifted up. They're set back on their feet, and they're encouraged. And the very next play, they run a 22-yard and get a touchdown. And ultimately, they go on to win this game. And the sheer power of that moment is amazing. Now, imagine that the crowd cheering you on aren't just spectators, but they are ones that bend where you are that have gone through what you are going through. And they're there to remind you that Jesus is worth it all, to keep going. And the text here also points out that we are surrounded more by more than just witnesses that have gone before us, but we're also running this race together. 
The command to run isn't telling someone in particular to run, but rather it's we, it's collective. Let us run. Let us also lay aside every weight. The race of faith is not one that we run alone. And throughout the book of Hebrews, we're reminded of this. In Hebrews chapter 3, the author writes, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Or in Hebrews chapter 10, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We were not made to run this race by ourselves. It's not good for us to be alone. Proverbs tells us that it's the fool that isolates himself. He breaks out against all sound judgment. There was this hike that I went on a number of years ago in Glacier National Park, and it was a long hike. It was hot. I was out of shape. I didn't have right equipment, right shoes. I didn't have nearly enough water. There's times on that hike that I thought I wasn't going to make it. Uh, I thought maybe I'd die of dehydration, of heat stroke. And there were times when we were up on the mountain that I thought, it's not worth it to go. It's not worth it. I don't have enough energy to go back. It'd probably be better if I just fell off the mountainside. (laughs) But I had friends there alongside me. Um, If they weren't there, I would have easily given up. But instead, we kept going. We made it to this glacial lake that was pure and refreshing, and we made it back. And so the next question I want us to ask is how can you surround yourself with a community of faith that runs alongside you towards Jesus? When someone trusts in Jesus, we're adopted into a family given brothers and sisters across time and space. And even more, we're called to be part of a local body, part of a church, where each of us has different gifts, each of us serves differently. And yet we're bound together through Christ. And so when someone becomes a covenant member of our church or another church, we recognize them as they're part of us, that they have committed themselves to care for the rest of us, and we've all cared, committed ourselves to care for that person. And so what would starting to commit to a church look like for you? Maybe that's arriving earlier on a Sunday morning to talk with people or staying later, um, participating in fellowship. Maybe that's committing to serve on one of the Sunday morning teams and serving alongside each other, reminding each other that it's not about us, it's about Jesus. 
about making him known. Maybe it's joining a gospel community group, meeting weekly, or making, attending your gospel community group a regular priority. Because when we're weary, when we're tired, we're so tempted to just isolate ourselves, to neglect meeting in the community of faith. That community of faith that God gives us, they're there to remind us to look to him, to come alongside us in our pains and our sorrows and our joys. And there's nothing more we need to remember than to consider Jesus who loves us, who wants to be with us, and he made it possible for us to be with him. And so the last question that I want us to consider as we run this race together is what is keeping you from running well? When we think of great athletes in the Olympics or whatever event uh, that you like to watch, um, they're so relentless in doing whatever they can to just be a little bit better, a little bit faster. Uh, Whether that's swimmers shaving off the hair of their entire bodies, bicyclists choosing lighter, less dense fabrics and parts for their bikes, race car teams making sure that they have the most aerodynamic car possible. But what are they racing for? Maybe it's adventure, maybe it's their pride, maybe it's accomplishment, maybe a gold medal, maybe some other kind of reward. But whatever it is, it pales in comparison to the better prize set before us. Yet many of us don't take what's slowing us down in our run towards Jesus seriously. Instead, (laughs) we're running around like the little brother in a Christmas story where we can't move our arms, there's a scarf around us, we can barely move. And if you imagine just like running a marathon like that, it's going to be miserable. (laughs) Um, That we're going to melt inside. Um, And yet, too often we're trying to run just like that, and it robs us of joy. Um, In the Apostle John's first letter, uh, he writes at the start of it that he's writing this letter that we would have complete joy. And right after that, he tells us to walk in the light, have fellowship with one another, to confess our sins, and trust the blood of Jesus will cleanse us from those sins. And that he can be trusted to forgive. After all, he paid the penalty himself. And we can be completely and totally honest about who we are and our need for the grace of Jesus because there's no longer any condemnation. He took that shame upon himself. We can be open about our need for him. Hebrews also tells us that Jesus has made perfect for all time those he is making holy. And so in this race, don't struggle with him as he helps you to tear off what's slowing you down, what's tangling you up and killing you. Instead, fight with him to cut out everything in your heart that tries to turn your eyes away from him into something else. But once again, we do this not alone. We do this in community and through the power of the Spirit. We rely on the care of our brothers and sisters to point out things that 
we've become blind to ourselves. And the author of Hebrews here also says not just to strip aside every sin, but also every weight. This weight can be anything that was good, that was a good gift, but instead we've blown it out of proportion and now it weighs us down. That we regularly, habitually dedicate our time and our lives to it at the expense of time with Jesus and his people. But if you're anything like me, you start thinking of this question of what is keeping you from running well, start analyzing your life and you start making this huge list of all this stuff I need to stop doing, all this stuff I need to start doing, and it's overwhelming and crushing. Or maybe some of you make a list and you're like, yeah, I can do that. <laughs> but this yoke gets too heavy for us to bear. The yoke of Jesus is light. He welcomes us in our weariness with open arms. And so running this race of faith is it's not done by keeping a to-do list of things to do and things not to do. Instead, running the race of faith is done by looking to Jesus and running to him. That there's this transformative power of looking to Jesus and running to him. That as you behold him, you spend time with him in, in your presence, you're transformed from one degree to another to look more and more and more like him. And as you bask in his character and what he's done, you can't help but want to run faster and faster and just take everything off that's slowing me down to running to him. And his power will work in you to help you strip those things aside. He'll use the spirit to convict you, to point things out when the time is right. He'll use the brothers and sisters around you. And more and more and more, you'll see how far you fall short and how great the grace and compassion of Jesus is. That Jesus is better than anything we could desire. He transforms us. He adopts us into a family. He went before us. He suffered in our place. And he'll ensure that we make it to the end. Because he's at work to restore all things. It says here, Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. He is the founder of our faith. He shows us his glory and his majesty, his incomprehensible mercy and grace that we do not deserve. And he gives us repentance and faith out of that grace. He starts us on this race. He lays it before us, and he goes before us, clearing the way. He's our leader, the one that suffers for us but he's also the perfecter of our faith. This race that he started us on, he's going to bring it to to completion. He's going to finish it. He gives us everything we need. And he's the faithful one, the one who endures. So we consider him. We look to him. We remember what he has done for us, that he endured for the joy set before him. He despised the shame that he faced and the crucifixion and the mocking, the betrayal and the flogging. He counted it as nothing compared to the joy before him. Because he was taking our sins to the cross. He was clearing our names. He was making a family of brothers and sisters that he has known and cherished 
before we were ever born. And he's also the one who's sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. He was raised from the dead and given all glory and majesty and power. He's deserving of all honor and praise. All things are being made subject and put underneath his feet. And his work of redemption for you and for me is completed with just a single sacrifice. He's seated, it's done. He's not continually standing in the temple offering sacrifice after sacrifice, day after day. Instead, he has sat down. We can trust in his promise that he will return in time to make all things right. He will restore us, he will restore his creation and make it new. This Jesus is more worthy of trust than anyone or anything. He's shown it. He paid for it with his life. He was raised from the dead when he said he would be. So in your weariness, don't turn away. Fix your gaze upon him. Consider him and run to him with abandon. Whenever this time of year comes where one year is ending and another year is starting, many of us have a tendency to start to reflect on how this year went. How can the next year go differently? Start making resolutions or things that we want to change, things we want to do. But the most important resolution that we could have is to commit to making time with Jesus a priority. Not just to serve him, but to be with him. To look to him, to consider who he is, to spend time with him. Remembering what he's done, what he is doing, and what he promises to do. And then a second would be prioritizing the time with his people. Firstly, like those who encourage you to look to him. If you're married, that starts with your spouse. If you're not, it's the community of faith. Uh, but for all of us, it's not neglecting meeting together. It's not neglecting having those deep conversations of our need for Jesus pointing each other again and again and again and again, even when it seems that we shouldn't need to be reminded, we do so again. To run together, to look to Jesus, to consider him. And so we run with him on mission together to bring others along with us. That this Jesus is the one who is better than anything we can think of. He's more trustworthy than anyone we could ever know. And so with that, let us pray and remember what he has done. God, when we were dead in our sins, when we were dead in our trespasses, when we were far from you doing whatever was right in our eyes, we deserved nothing more but to be cast off, to be punished. But God, you, in your kindness and mercy and grace, sent your Son. You sent Jesus to enter into our mess, to become like us, take on our sins and sorrows and our shame to pay for it with his life. You rose him from the dead 
showing that it has completely paid for. And now we can trust you. We can follow you. We can run with abandon. So God, help us to behold you. Help us to strip away everything that slows us down from chasing after you. God, give us wisdom. Give us patience and grace as we run alongside those you have given us. God, we need the empowerment of your spirit. We cannot endure without you. So God, when it seems that all else is falling away, remind us once again of who you are. In your name we pray. Amen.